Thank you, Graham. And we're now going to sing again from Psalm 65, this time verses 6 to 13, and the tune is Babel Streams. By strength and power you formed the hills, you hashed the ocean's voice, you calmed the tumult of their waves, and stilled the people's noise. Verses 6 to 13. By strength and power you form the hills, you hush the ocean's voice, you calm the tumult of their waves, and still the people's think about God, our Redeemer. And thinking about God as Creator enables us to think about our harvest thanksgiving. Harvests are something that we might just take for granted. They happen every year. In some countries, like Israel, they have two harvests in a year. So there are lots of harvests taking place around the world every year. Everybody has their opinion about harvests. Some wonder whether or not we should be uh, interfering with them modifying crops and so on. But nevertheless, harvests still 
occur. And every year, despite the um, pessimistic outlook of some, enough is always given to satisfy the planet. It is the case that many millions go hungry, but that's not because of the lack of supply. It's generally due to the lack of will to get food to them. So the harvests are there. As I said, people have um, a lot to say about them. Not only do people have a lot to say about them, but so does God. It's through harvests that God largely reveals his common grace. And he does that in lots of different ways. He also, um, through harvests, he reveals his plans. And hopefully we'll see that as we go through this sermon. It's also a means of God showing his capability. Someone says to us, what can your God do in 2023? Well, what would we say to him, to them, sorry, if they ask us that question? I think it is an important question. And we should have answers to it. And of course, in the Bible, as we know, uh, God uses harvests, not just as a means of blessing people, but also as a means of punishing them. Because he sometimes, in some places, causes them not to have a harvest. And that was quite common, especially in the Old Testament. I want us to look at four passages that speak about harvests. One we read in Genesis chapter 1. That's harvest in Genesis. And then there's another reference in Genesis chapter 8. Harvest after the flood. And then in Acts chapter 14, we have harvests explained in a place called Lystra, where Paul gives a short address on harvests. And then in Malachi 3, 10 to 11, a connection is made between harvests and tithing. So I just want us to think about these um, things today. The first one is in Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. I just want to reread it. And this is a harvest. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. So there was a harvest before Adam and Eve appeared. Indeed, the earth that Adam and Eve saw was an earth full of the fruits of a global harvest. Everywhere, they couldn't have gone everywhere, but if they had, they would have seen the same thing. Let the earth produce vegetation, fruit trees, and so on. The world was just full of it. There wasn't a place where there wasn't an abundant harvest. 
we might look back and say, well, what's that got to do with us? Well, every tree you see today, every fruit tree, appeared on day three of Genesis. Every plant appeared on day three of Genesis. The carrots and the potatoes and anything else you may choose to eat today are all traced back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, to day 3. God wasn't just doing something once, but he was doing something with ongoing effects. I read this from Matthew Henry. Talking about day three of Genesis. That common providence is a continued creation, and in it our Father worketh hitherto. The earth still remains under the efficacy of this command to bring forth grass and herbs and its annual products. And though, being according to the common course of nature, these are not standing miracles, yet they are standing instances of the unwearied power and unexhausted goodness of the world's great maker and master. So, everything we see in vegetation and in fruit trees, we should automatically think of day three of Genesis and say to ourselves, way back then, God was thinking of us and providing for us. I know there's been uh, developments within the different kinds, but God was thinking back then of our physical needs and providing for us with great variety and abundance. And this is all part of his common grace. Grace that is still shown everywhere in the world. Isn't that extraordinary? Imagine Adam and Eve looking out as far as their eyes could see. I mean, it was obviously much more than they themselves could actually use. On um, day six, when they went for a walk, I mean, there was the, the amount was so large. And even although there were animals uh, to share in this um, provision. Yet, as far as need was concerned, there was much more, wasn't there, than what they actually needed. God had saturated the world with his goodness, his riches of his common grace, I suspect we don't really pay much heed to that. At least I don't, to the way I should. But the Lord's bounty, who can measure it? That's our God. Adam had lots of evidence that God was capable of providing for him, even if he should live forever. And there it was. How we know what happened. In the middle of this divine abundance, Adam chose to disobey the provider. And all the good things that God had made there were tainted. 
And the creation, instead of being a, shall we call it, a happy place, became a groaning place. Imagine Adam, forget how long he lived for, 900 and something years. Imagine the harvests of all these years. 900 and whatever they were. 900 not as good as the first one. And he would have to explain to his increasing number of descendants why the harvests no longer were perfect. That sin had come in. Sin brought in by him because of his rash and determined intention to disobey God. And it must be very difficult for Adam to to provide an explanation. We can imagine his great, 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 great grandchild saying to him, why did you do it? What answer could he give? Of course, we can't point the finger at him. Because the reality is that if we had been there instead of Adam, we would have made the same choice. But there it is, the harvest at the beginning. A reminder to us how, how competent our God is. He speaks a word and it is done. What was in his mind when he said, let the earth produce? I mean, when we have, when we have to indicate what we're going to do, we have to provide a list of items. Because it's not possible with our puny minds, even for the best of us, to have everything in our minds at one moment. But God, when he said, let the earth spring forth, he knew everything. Every different plant and fruit and whatever else there was going to be, he just knew it. And he knew where each one was going to be appear and so on. And I hope at this moment our hearts are full of wonder but the amazing competence of God, the living God, the source of all life, the God who is to be worshipped. Our creator, he didn't just create things and say to us, get on with it. But he just showed to us there in Genesis 1 what could be done with his help. That's harvest in Genesis 1. But secondly, there's harvest after the flood. I'm just going to read from Genesis chapter 8 and verses 20 to 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. If Adam, when he looked out of the garden, saw a world full of plenty, Noah, when he looked out and stepped out of the ark, he saw a world ravaged by divine judgment. What would uh, 
God have to say uh, to an isolated family in a scene of carnage? They are isolated. There is only one family, Noah and his family. And as we see, God uh, resolves that one of the comforts, if we want to put it that way, of ensuring Noah that he and his family have a future is to inform him, or to say in a way that there will never be another flood. Yet um, Moses, as he records or describes this incident, says something that is quite intriguing. Because he says there in, uh, in verse um, 21 that the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, and so on. It doesn't say that God said this to Noah. What he did say to Noah was that he wouldn't um, send a flood again on the earth that would destroy the whole of um, the system, as it were. But in his heart, he said something. And in his heart, as the Lord looked down all the centuries that were to come, he said, while the earth remains, he didn't say how long it would remain. It could be for thousands, thousands of years. But while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. There's no hint in this account given by Moses that Noah was aware of that. And that, that detail might not have been revealed until God enabled Moses to actually write the book of Genesis. But there, when the Lord speaks in his heart, are we not getting an insight into a kind of inner conversation in the, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as they contemplate the future of the creation that they have made. And when the Lord says something in his heart, surely there's a hint of divine pleasure at him going on giving this great provision for rebellious sinners. It's not just that never again is there going to be a flood, but always there is going to be this constant provision. And even, given the context, even if the post-flood world becomes as bad as the pre-flood world, God will continue to give Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So, down the many centuries since then, there's been a constant scream of rebellion going up to the generous God. And there's no hint anywhere that's going to change. But on and on comes this divine supply. And here we are in 2023, with all these varied expressions of rebellion against God. And yet, in the midst of all this uncertainty, there is this one certainty, that harvest will occur. And it doesn't, in a sense, matter what people think about whether or not there'll be one. We have to remember that the Lord has said in his heart, 
that this will never cease. And we have to be careful. When we, if we start talking about natural disasters, and sadly there are natural disasters, but we have to be careful that we don't, when we're speaking about them, give the impression that God has forgotten about what he thought in his heart on the day that Noah came out of the ark. Our God will ensure us a harvest in 2024 and also in 2054 if time is still going on or in 3054 that's his promise and he made it strangely for the same reason why he sent the flood the reason why he sent the flood is because people were so bad. The reason why he's going to send the future harvest is the same reason. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The reason why he's not going to curse the ground because of man is because Man's heart is evil. What an insight we get into the grace of God there. So, grace to the undeserving. Harvest time. A reminder to us of what God contemplated within himself as he looked down into the future. God the provider and he's still doing it today and we should praise him sadly in recent times there's been devastating floods and surely that should bring to our minds that there's never been a global flood again and there never will be because God has promised that there will be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. They shall not cease as long as time lasts. So that's good to know, isn't it? Whatever is going to happen next year, who can say? But there will be summer and winter, seed time, and harvest. And then there's harvests explained in Lystra. And this is in Acts chapter 14, verses 13 to 18. Paul had healed a crippled man in Lystra. And because he had done that, the inhabitants thought that he and Barnabas were two gods paying them a visit. Because apparently in the past there was a belief that at some stage a god had come down. And they imagined that he had returned. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. 
have no idea <coughs> if, <coughs> excuse me, if anyone ever announced government policy in Lystra. If a political dignitary came along to that ancient city and explained what the government was doing. No idea if that happened. But I do know, as you all do, that in Lystra, heaven's policy was explained, not just a policy for a region, and not just a policy for a certain period of time, but a policy that covers everywhere and always. And Paul, as he responds to this attempt to worship him and Barnabas, he summarizes heaven's policy. And that policy is still in place. And it's good for us to listen to it. Because this tells us what God will do. So what does Paul say about God in this brief uh, exhortation? Well, of course, he reminds them that he's the living God. I mean, I suppose when he actually says that, He's talking about their notion that at some stage in the past a god with a small g came down to visit them. He's a living god. They're to turn from the vain things to a living god. And he describes this living god as the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He's just asking these inhabitants of Lystra and as far as I remember, Lystra is nowhere near the sea. But still, the, the apostle points out that everything they can see came from the hand of God. And everything that's alive came from the hand of God. And he's just reminding them, this is God. It's around you everywhere. He's the creator. I suspect everybody knows that. It's part of their makeup. And they might try and suppress it and get rid of it. But people know that they're God's creature. But, God, but Paul also points out that he's more than that. He points out he's the sovereign God. As he says in verse 16 there of Acts 14, that in past generations, not just some of the past generations, but in all past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. So if you take down a history book of the ancient world and you can read about all kinds of things. Alexander the Great getting to the stage where he has to weep because he has no more worlds to conquer. The only reason he thought that is because he didn't know how big the world was. There was plenty parts of the world he hadn't conquered. Or Julius Caesar coming to Britain and conquering it despite the efforts of the inhabitants over here to prevent him. We can select anything out of ancient history and what can we say about it? Well, Paul tells us here what we can say about it. He held, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Every one of them, whoever they are, they're just going down a route of life 
that they have self-chosen. And God, as Paul tells us there, had basically limited the knowledge of himself to one nation. And that was his sovereign choice. And it's just a reality. And we may want to question it in all kinds of ways, but it doesn't change the reality that for all these long centuries, millennia, the nations just walked in their own ways. And God allowed them to do it. I mean, that word allowed is quite a frightening word, isn't it? It's not just nations he allows to go in their own ways. Individuals. We choose our path. And we make it on very well. And it's all happening because God allows it. The fact that we're getting on well is no proof that God approves of it. So he's a sovereign that did that. Yet during all that time, Paul says he provided for people. During all that period, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You know, all these nations had their annual festival celebrations at harvest time. They saw a reason for celebration, but they didn't understand who they should be celebrating. The great God who had given them good. And as Paul tells us elsewhere in Romans, It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Harvest time, in which God's goodness is superabundant, is a very appropriate time for repentance. As we're almost submerged in all the evidence of the kindness of God as he pours out his blessings on rebellious sinners. God's goodness. But there it is. But in addition to um, Paul, and in addition to them talking about God being the living God and the creator and the provider of everything, he tells them, now, The divine policy is shifted to another level, we might say. And all these peoples whom he allowed to go their own way, he now offers to them his way. And of course, his way, in addition to repenting of their sins, is to trust in Jesus. the Savior who came and went to this world to pay the penalty of sin and to make it possible for sinners to be reconciled to God. And when someone is reconciled to God and is at peace with him, their celebrations become very different. The living God, the great provider, He's good, isn't he? Surely, as part of our evangelism, we should stress the goodness of God, the great provider, the one who meets all our needs, physical and spiritual.
It's a wonderful policy to be read out in Lystra. In fact, it would be a very good reaction for us. Every time we hear a government policy read out, that we turn to Acts 14 and remind ourselves of God's policy, of something that he has put in place. And because he has put it in place, nothing can take it away. Lastly, harvest and tithing. There in Malachi chapter 3, verses 9 to 12, God speaking to Israel through the prophet says, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Tithing is often a contentious topic. When were tithes required in Israel? Well, there were voluntary tithes, which you could do any time you liked. But there were required tithings. And they only happened at harvest time. And at harvest time, people were to take their tithes of the harvest to the storehouses in the temple. Tithing wasn't the only means that were used for keeping things going. But tithing was required for three reasons. And it's tithing of harvest. It was used for the benefit of the Levites who served God in full-time way. It was also used to feed the poor. And a third reason is mentioned in Deuteronomy 14 for provision at festivals. And if you read about the festivals, and of course they have several festivals in Israel, and it was all met by this tithing. But here in Malachi's time, for whatever reason, the people of Israel were not tithing their harvests. And because that was the case, God did not give them good harvests. Sometimes we look at this wonderful promise and we say, this is a picture of revival. But is it? Is it not more likely a reminder to the people of Israel of how they're going to get a good harvest? If they refuse to give their tithe at their harvests, then the next harvest will not be sufficient. But if they do tithe, then the next harvest will be sufficient. And that is what God says. I don't think this is a roadmap for revival. I think it's just a roadmap given to Israel 
about how they can get good harvest. They failed to do what God told them to do. And the outcome of that was that they didn't get the blessing he had promised. It's not giving to us a process by which somehow or other we can get a spiritual revival. It is important that we pray for revival. But there's no guarantee anywhere that we suddenly give tithing of certain things that somehow or other a revival is going to happen. But the promise was made to Israel if you start taking this divine requirement seriously, then my blessing, says God, will be upon you. The blessing of abundant harvests. So, what's the lesson to us? I don't think the lesson to us is that somehow or other, we have to get our calculator out and work out how much a tithe would be. Because as I mentioned earlier, tithing was not the only means by which the people had to help out with their responsibilities. There was many other things like the temple tax. And there was a tax they had to pay to the civil authorities as well as the tithe. To me, as far as I can see, what Malachi is stressing is the importance of constant obedience. That if God says something seemingly as insignificant as sending a tenth of your corn to the temple storehouse, well, if God regards that as important for ancient Israel, he regards our obedience to the very specific commands his word contains. A hearty obedience to them all. So as we close, what does harvest say to us? God gave abundantly at the beginning. A picture of what life on planet Earth could have been. But has not happened because of our sin. But which may happen in the new heavens and new earth. Who can say? But there at the beginning, God gave abundantly at harvest time. At the time of the flood, the Lord in his own heart in his vast, omniscient heart, contemplated the full, the, all the periods of human history, despite the evilness of all the sinners that were to come, he said, I will give them harvests. Paul told the people in Lystra, the best response to a harvest is to engage in repentance, to realize how unworthy we are of the divine goodness. And the advice given to Israel about making sure they paid their tithe is a reminder to us that to obey is better than sacrifice. And that's the challenge that comes to us. To obey God heartily in 2023. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that you are good. And you do good. All the years that we have been here, each of us has seen a harvest. 
We have seen many other things as well. Things that were the equivalent of people raising their fists against you. But as you told, told yourself, it's because man is evil from his youth that you supply all these good things. No doubt there's many reasons for that. But we have to remind ourselves that you are the unchanging God who does good even to those who oppose you. And we pray, Lord, as people today, at all their mealtimes, taste of the benefits of your harvest, that they would be led to think of where did all this come from and somehow discover the connection to the gospel and that they would believe in Jesus. Do that, Lord, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen. We can sing from Psalm 107 in Scottish Psalter, verses 35 to 38. The tune is rest. The burnt and parched wilderness to water pools he brings. The ground that was dried up before He turns to water springs. We'll sing verses 35 to 38. The burnt and parched wilderness to water pools he brings. The ground that was dried up Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.